Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Back here to Romans chapter 15. So turn there. Look at where we are in this epistle. I got a stack of sermons at home about this thick that I've been compiling here. I'm kind of interested to count them when I'm all done to see how many it took to go through Paul's letter. So let me read verses 1 to 6. This is continuing. Just forget the chapter division here. This is continuing chapter 14. Remember this whole discussion about, he talked in chapter 14, mentions the weak and the weak, which implies that there's a strong in the church. Now he's going to mention them in the first verse of the 15th chapter. Now this is not commentator's imagination. He is comparing the weak with the strong in the church. And the key to understanding who he's talking about is to realize that the background to this epistle apparently is a tension and perhaps a disunity in the Roman community of Christians between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And the Gentile believers, they had every, they didn't look at days, they weren't concerned about days, they weren't concerned about diet. And so when he's talking about those who can't eat meat versus those who can, he's comparing the hang-ups of the Jewish believers with the Gentiles who really were entirely free. They were enjoying real freedom in Christ. They weren't bogged down by any requirements of the law of Moses and so on. So that is the background here to this discussion. And he's continuing this. Verses 1 to 6. Notice who Paul identifies himself with. We who are the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear, isn't it? A wonderful passage. So it's this tension, this disunity between the Jewish and Gentile believers that is the background to many of the things that Paul brings up in this letter. So chapter 15 is continuing this. And uh, he continues, 
this, the struggle between the weak and the strong of chapter 14. And Paul, of course, what he's aiming for is to promote unity, foster unity in this church, and give them some practical things as to how they're to do that. How do you foster unity? How do you promote unity when there's some disagreements? And uh, perhaps some quarreling going on in the church. And he's going to use the Lord Jesus Christ as the great example, model, and motive to all of this. I heard a preacher say once that Paul liked to crack nuts with atomic bombs. <laughs> what he meant by that was... Paul taking Jesus, the example of Jesus, (laughs) to reinforce a simple Christian exhortation, a nut, like loving one another. In this case, respecting a weaker brother, trying to promote his good rather than your own interests. I'll never forget that analogy. It was perfect. Cracking a nut with an atomic bomb. Okay, so let's jump into this, and I want you to note in verses 1 and 2, Paul is going to have an exhortation here as to the responsibility. First of all, in verse 1, it's the responsibility of the strong to the weak, and then in verse 2, he's going to, he, he frames it differently, and it's more, the emphasis is more on how they're to uh, conduct themselves toward each other. When he changes the term to neighbor, (laughs) that's everybody, but particularly your neighbor in the church. So, we who are strong, see Paul's a converted Jew, but he understood that he wasn't under the law anymore. He didn't care about the observance of days, although we see him in the book of Acts going up to the temple with that uh, observation of some feast. But he did that to win the Jews. I've become all things to all men, if by any means he wasn't under that law anymore. So he really, in a sense, he sided with the Gentile believers. And they're the strong ones. The Jews were bogged down by all the scruples of the Mosaic law. Some of those requirements were still hanging on. They still felt problems with things that they could eat and couldn't eat, the observance of days, and so on. So he dealt with that in chapter 14. Now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. The failings, their weaknesses, is what he's referring to. Now, this is the first time he uses the word strong in this text of chapter 14 and 15, and the idea of the word is those that are capable, those who are able, whereas the weak, it's more, they're without strength. Remember Romans 5, he talks about those that are without strength, that's the idea. The weak were without strength versus those who are capable. And Paul means that they're strong with respect to their faith. They're able to apply the Christian faith so that they're not 
troubled by these things that the Jewish people, the Jewish believers still struggled with. They're fully enjoying their freedom. Paul enjoyed freedom in Christ. But he tells them that they're obligated to bear with the weak. Now, the idea of bearing is bearing burdens. Same word that he uses over in Galatians when he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the image, bearing their burdens. How do we do that? See, it's really the onus is on the strong here. The onus is on Paul and the Gentile believer to really try to help their weak Jewish brothers and sisters. How do they do that? Well, not by criticizing them and judging them and treating them like that, but to understand that they're carrying a burden. Really, this is how you sympathize with them. The Lord Jesus, he totally sympathized with the people of his day. He understood the burdens that the Jewish leaders laid on the backs of the, of the Jewish people, and they were weighed down by these things. Remember, it comes out in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and verse 10, when the question is asked by one of the apostles, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. And that's, that's what he's talking about. So Paul is encouraging the Gentile believers, try to understand, sympathize with them. They're carrying still a yoke that none could bear before and cannot bear even to this day. And he adds, not not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves. You know, we're, we're all born narcissists. To every person, he's the most important, she's the most important person in the world. By nature, that's how we are. So this this goes against what we are by nature, for Paul to say this. Boy, do you ever see it in the culture today? I need some me time. Heard that expression? Me time. It's all about me, very me-oriented. So Paul calls on the strong to deny themselves in consideration of the weak, See, one of the goals of the death of Jesus, as I've said several times, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is like a diamond with many facets. And you can take that diamond and you could look at it from so many different angles and see a beautiful facet cut in. And you get that from all the statements in the New Testament about the death of Christ and the purpose of his death. The purpose of his death was to deliver us from this present evil world, Paul says in Galatians 1. Or 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so you can go with that angle. 
Well, in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul gives us as one of the goals of the death of Christ, and he puts it like this, that he died for us, that we should no longer live to ourselves, but unto him who died and rose again for us. Verse 15, 2 Corinthians 5. In other words, Jesus Christ died to change the orientation of our life from being very self-centered to being Christ-centered. And we need to undergo that change. That's part of becoming a believer. We come to see that our life was very self-centered. We were focused on our own selves in life, pleasing ourselves. But Christ died to change that, that orientation. Then he adds in verse 2, let each of us... Now, he's, he's going from the responsibility of the strong toward the weak, bearing with their weaknesses, their failings, to now he kind of addresses everyone. Let each of us, both the strong and the weak, notice, to please his neighbor. <laughs> and how do we do that? How do we please our neighbor? We please him for his good. Now, what kind of good is Paul talking about? Well, principally spiritual good because he defines it by saying to build him up. This is one of Paul's favorite metaphors in his letters. That of a building, building a structure. And it's translated to edify in 1 Corinthians, for example. And Paul uses this over and over again. I believe there are 18 uses in the New Testament, and Paul uses it 15 of those 18 times. So this was a favorite illustration. And what he's describing for us is when Christians are interacting among themselves, their goal is to lift up the brother or the sister. We do that to one another. Instead of the opposite is to tear down, <laughs> criticize, judge, tear down. That's the opposite. Rather, to lift up and to encourage is to build up. I like the way it's put in Hebrews 10 to provoke one another to love and good works. That'd be one of the ways in which we build up each other. In other words, strengthen each other in the faith. Encourage one another in our walk, in our journey. And you do that by sharing uh, your experiences, what's going on. You encourage your brother or your sister by listening to them, giving them good feedback. Now he's going to crack a nut with an atomic bomb. Okay, Verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. This is point number two. The example of Jesus... And the Word of God provides the foundation for, he's backing it, he's reinforcing it, he's illustrating it. This simple command in verses 1 and 2, toward one another, toward our neighbor. Notice what he says. For Christ did not please himself. 
I'm not sure we find a statement like this anywhere else in Paul's writings. I was thinking through it. I think this is the only place where he, he puts it like this about Jesus Christ. But you stop and think about it, that this characterized, this characterized his incarnation and his entire life, that he did not please himself. His focus was on the church that he was coming to redeem. And Paul uses that in Philippians 2 when he's, he exhorts the, the Christians at Philippi to, you know, look out not only for your own things, but for the things of your brother and sister. Be concerned about their interests in this world. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he describes the incarnation. An amazing, in-depth explanation of what was involved in his condescension, his coming into this world and taking human nature into union with himself and so on. So he uses the Lord Jesus Christ to reinforce this selflessness because that's, that really explains in a simple way the life of Christ. That he was here on a mission, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That you through his poverty might be made rich. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Now, notice how Paul reinforces this about Christ. He cites an Old Testament text. As it is written. Now this is to tell us how, in what sense Christ did not please himself. This comes from Psalm 69 and verse 9. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now in that verse, it also says... That I am consumed by a zeal for your house. Which is quoted by John in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time. At the beginning of his ministry. He was consumed with zeal for his father's house. But they had turned it into a marketplace. And then it dishonored his father. And he drove out the money changers. But here Paul quotes this aspect of it. So this text is used to illustrate Jesus' selflessness. The reproaches that fell upon you, he's talking about his father. They fell upon me. So when he saw God dishonored, It grieved him. In fact, it grieved him more than the dishonor that was directed at himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The insults intended for God fell on Jesus. Because he put God's glory, God's honor above his own. He pleased not himself. And as a side note here, the instances in the New Testament of Jesus' 
Weeping, there are two specific ones in the Gospels, and then there's a reference to his weeping in Hebrews chapter 5. It looks like in all those cases that it, except Hebrews 5, let's, I'll talk about it in a second, that it's his grief over sin. When he wept over Jerusalem, it was there, the obstinacy of the Jewish people in the past and in the present that broke his heart. How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. They would not allow that. Yet the Hosea's were being sung to him all this time, and this is how he was still impacted by the sin of Jerusalem. I think the same might be said at the tomb of Lazarus. I know there's it's been different ways when he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, wept over death. Could be he's weeping over sin itself that brought death into the world. He's also showing sympathy with Mary and Martha who are weeping over the loss of their brother. So there's much there in the tears of Christ at the tomb of Lazarus. But here's something I want to bring out. That his grief over sin could very well be an aspect of his suffering and his death. Just think about it for a moment. A sacrifice that is made for sin would seem to also involve a grief over that sin, the one who's making the sacrifice. That that should go hand in hand with his sacrifice, his grief over sin. In other words, if Jesus did not show any grief over sin, when he's going to the cross to bear all that sin, it wouldn't look right to us. It might seem odd to us. So the fact that we see him weeping over sin is really something that we would expect to see. That that would be a part of the making the accept, making his sacrifice acceptable to the Father. And Hebrews puts it that he, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications to God with loud crying and tears. Hebrews 5.7 Unto him that was able to save him from death. That could be a commentary on his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. It also might be a reflection just generally on his ministry, something that happened not only in Gethsemane, but over and over again. But I like the language. He offered. It was offering. Part of his offering. Yes, it was prayer, but coupled with loud crying and tears. So the point is, Jesus expressed grief and sorrow over the sin that was committed against his father. He felt it deeply. It pierced his soul. And this added to the acceptableness of his sacrifice on the cross. Now Paul brings up the word of God. For whatever was written, and I think he's saying now, he's giving us the justification for the use of Psalm 69. For, notice it begins with four, verse four. 
For whatever was written in former days was written for... Now Paul's going to say four things about the Old Testament. But it brings out particularly Paul's respect for the Old Testament, his regard for it as total authority over the life of the Christian, the application of it to the Christian. What does he say about the value of the Old Testament? Well, the first thing is that it is written for our instruction. Now, this is not only the first time he says this. He says it again to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he says the word of God is profitable for, and he lists those things. And the first thing he says is instruction. In other words, the word of God gives us knowledge. It teaches us what we need to know. Paul said that the scriptures can make us, one can be made wise to salvation. If he pays attention to it, follows what it says carefully, he'll be led to the knowledge of salvation. So instruction, very important. The Old Testament is valuable for the New Testament believer in terms of instruction. That's why we should read the Old Testament. Don't neglect the Old Testament. The Old Testament is invaluable to us. It gives us the basis for what we read in the New Testament. It all goes together. But now Paul adds that it imparts... Whatever was written before was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures. So take those next two words, endurance and encouragement. The Old Testament imparts these two things to the Christian. The first word, endurance, is a very common word used in Paul's letters in the New Testament. It's the word that means to persevere, to have fortitude, to be able to bear up under difficulty when we face it in our life, to be able to hold on when we're being assaulted by the trials and tribulations of this world. In other words, to be steadfast or to endure. The Word of God does that. For us. Not only does it do that, but it, it imparts encouragement to us. It lifts our spirits, it consoles us, comforts us, counsels us. This is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. That whole section, you're all familiar with it, where Paul says, he talks about the God of comfort who comfort us in all our afflictions, that we may be able to comfort others with the same comfort whereby we were comforted of God. He uses the word comfort nine times in just a few verses. Nine times. It's this word right here. Encouragement. Comfort. So instruction, it imparts these two E words to us. That we might have hope. So that's a, that's a purpose clause at the end. So 
It instructs us, it gives us this fortitude to persevere, it keeps our spirits up while we're in trial, in order that we might have hope out here. What is hope? Well, it's that looking for something, anticipating something in the future, but it's not wishful thinking. That's not the idea of hope in the New Testament. It's not the hope. I've said this before, the illustration, somebody who hopes to get lucky and hit the lottery or something like that. It's not that kind of hope in the Bible. It's a hope based on the promise of God, and we are confident of the fulfillment of it, because we know who God is. If God has promised it, then he's going to bring it to pass. And so the Christian's hope is grounded in in God himself, in the word of God, and we have that confidence that this hope is going to come to fruition in our lives. It's going to come to pass. It's going to be realized. That's the idea of hope. And you know, so what what Paul, I think he's saying about the scriptures, it gives us everything necessary when we're especially in trials. It keeps us from getting depressed, from becoming despairing in our life. So we need the word of God. And that's just the Old Testament does all that for us. Now we have the New Testament on top of the Old, which adds to all these points, and more so. Okay, in verses 5 and 6, we have, and this is a term that I've come across now for these prayers, these benedictions of Paul that we find usually at the end of his letters, but not always. In the book of Romans, we find it, Actually, in a few places, they're wish prayers. They're wish prayers. They're prayers for the people. So Paul is making intercession, but he's letting them in on what he's praying for because he's telling them what he's praying for. So his readers are the audience. This is what he's praying. What is it he prays for the Christian community at Rome? It's pretty beautiful. May the God of endurance and encouragement. So now he's addressing God in the being, and I take this that he's the source of these two things. So if you find yourself being encouraged by the scriptures and being given the grace to persevere no matter what you face as a Christian, that ability and that grace comes from who? From God. He's the one who's helping you. He's the one lifting you up. Perhaps he's using a brother or a sister to do it, but still he's the ultimate source. So Paul can call him the God of encouragement and endurance, just like he's going to call him, uh, he called him the God of peace in the previous uh, chapter. Paul has many ways of looking at Yahweh in the Bible. May the God of endurance and encouragement, notice, grant you to live in such harmony. Now, in the original, it means the idea is to be of the same mind, to be of the same mind. And so it's, the, the translation is fine, to live in harmony. Now, why is he saying that to him? Well, again, because of this 
the, the, the tension in the church, the disagreement between the weak and the strong. Paul wants to bring them together. He wants to promote unity in the church. That in spite of their disagreements, in spite of their differences of opinion, be of the same mind. Let these things go. They're not all that important. Well, he's praying for their unity. And I like how he says this, in accord with Christ Jesus. Again, he reinforces so many of his exhortations to Christians by, again, we, we constantly need this. We need this appeal. That you do this in order to be in agreement with Jesus. This is, he prayed for the unity of the church in his high priestly prayer. This is what he wants among his people. He wants unity. We're doing his will when we promote this. Because our ultimate goal always is to please him. It's as simple as that. He's the standard. He's the standard of our behavior as believers. Now verse 6. This is beautiful. That together... Instead of having this kind of division in the church, be of the same mind that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the ultimate goal of the church. So it reminds the church again of what its purpose is in this world, why we're here, what should be our goal and everything. As he puts it in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So that's always Paul's ultimate goal for the church, for Christians. Do all to the glory of God. So, let's just go back now for a moment and think about the subject again of non-essentials and essentials in the church, because this is what he's dealing with. When it comes to diet and days, the observance of days, the eating of different kinds of food because one feels that he's more acceptable to God if he doesn't eat meat that has been strangled, isn't kosher, and so on, that whole thing that we went over before, I'm not going to repeat all that. These, these come under the, under the category of non-essentials. What do you mean by that? Well, there can be differences in the church on these matters, but it doesn't affect your salvation. It's not at the core of the Christian faith. We can have completely different ideas about Different things in the church, the use of alcohol, for example, or whether going to movies is okay or not, or all those, those gray areas of Christian behavior. We can have differences of opinion on that. See, here's the problem, is that Christians have made a mistake by taking something that they believe very strongly in, but when it's examined closely, it belongs to the category of non-essentials. But they feel very strongly about it. 
Bible translations. There's a lot of strong opinions about that in churches. So we can we can we can have our opinions on these things, but yeah, I'm just not singling that out for anybody here. But I bring it up because we do have some differences of opinion in our church about Bible translations and so on, and that's fine. I don't, it doesn't make any difference to me. I'm probably the if I go to another book after. Romans, I don't think I'm going to use the ESV. I'm going to use a different translation. I'm going to try something different. So, but among the differences of opinion, it's the problem comes if we impose an opinion on others and tend to think maybe less of that person because they don't agree. With, with that. that that's, that's where the problem comes, I think. So as Christians, we need to learn to distinguish between what are the essentials of the Christian faith and what are the non-essentials. So remember, I used the idea of concentric circles, and Jim made reference to this last Sunday. By the way, it was a beautiful sermon. I watched it in North Carolina. I really enjoyed Jim's sermon last week. It was a good one, very needed for us. But he was repeating this idea of concentric circles. You have one in the center and then another layer and perhaps a third. And this is how I think of it. The ones in the center are the truths that are necessary for salvation. There are certain things a person has to believe in order to become a Christian. He needs to accept the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an essential He needs to believe in Christ's death in his place, a substitutionary, vicarious, penal death of Jesus, his resurrection, his deity, that he's the God-man, and so on. So you cannot be a Christian and question any of those things. Now on the next side, I think in the next layer, you don't have to be a strict Calvinist to be saved. I don't put that in the center. Like I have to believe in limited atonement, total depravity, and those things. Now, it's important to note, to believe those. It's the next layer. I'm going to be closer to the truth of the Bible if I hold those. I'm going to have a better view of who is the author of salvation if I hold those things. Then on the outside of that, I'd put like church government, different modes of baptism in that circle on the outside. Actually, it's the things, the things in the third circle is what divides the churches up into denominations, by the way. Most of the churches agree in the center. It's it's the third circle where the disagreements are that make the different denominations. It's crazy. You think about that. Now, I wouldn't say exactly church government is a non-essential, but the non-essentials Paul's talking about, some of them are in the third ring, and and some are on the outside of even those circles. They're really, you know, I mean, some churches that say women cannot wear makeup, and so on. I mean, and they will separate over that, create a whole denomination that is known for those things. This is what I'm talking about. This is where the problem is. So when the church divides over non-essentials, this is instigated by the enemy. 
John Bunyan said the denominational differences, he says they're from the pit of hell. John Bunyan said that. He did not like denominations in the church. He thought it came from the evil one. So, it dishonors the Lord, it distracts the church from its mission, and turns it inward. Is that whole discussion that occurred in the RBC concerning the impassibility of God, does that belong to... I wouldn't say it's a non-essential, but it's kind of out there because there are differences of opinion on that point. Has it, all those things tends to turn a church inward upon itself, and I think we then lose our focus. So, I want to remind you of the great words of St. Augustine. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things... Love. That, that, that is a well-known thing. You may have heard it before. It's worth recalling because that is a good summary of what the biblical position is on non-essentials. So, we have to be able to distinguish, decide what is a non-essential, what is simply an opinion, a conviction. It could be an opinion could turn into a conviction. And a person thinks that it's based on the Bible. It could be just an opinion that becomes very strong. So we've got to learn as Christians to be able to distinguish those things. So that's kind of obviously what I wanted to emphasize from this passage. Because this really helped Paul's ministry to Rome to be effective, I think. I think he really did foster unity by bringing up and teaching the church on these matters. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.